Okay. Let's see. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, this is on. So, hello. Testing. How's this? Oh, yeah. Much better. So, uh, welcome everyone. And um, yeah, I want to just um, first and foremost congratulate you in our first day of practice. And. Um, we know that the first day or few days uh, is, is challenging because this is a different um, type of lifestyle than many of us are used to living. And so we know at times there can be challenges. I'd like to just offer you a little description from Bhante Gunaratana. He wrote a very wonderful book called Mindfulness in Plain English. And I'm just curious if this sounds familiar. He says, somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. And that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. Sound familiar, anyone? Yeah. He goes on to say, no problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. Perhaps it's always been this way and just haven't noticed. So I love that um, how Bhante uh, normalizes the practice of meditation. He also says that it takes a certain, and the, the, the word that he uses is kind of an older word, it says it takes a lot of gumption to meditate, a lot of gumption to sit with ourselves. It's not easy. This perhaps is some of the most noblest of works, the sitting with ourselves and at times uh, some of the most challenging. So um, we'll bear with it and see what we can learn here. And there's always something to be learned. Actually, Hafiz, a Persian poet, <clears throat> he describes um, for three days, but we could actually call this six days. We're on a six-day retreat. He says, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in a year as sitting all alone for three days or six days and in your closet, that would really do it. And that means not leaving. And you better get your friend to help you with a few sandwiches and you better get yourself a chamber pot. No reading, uh-uh. No writing either. That'd be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360-degree detox, though the sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated. But dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There's a ruby buried inside here. But you might be wondering, well, where's the ruby? <laughs> where's the ruby? 
when I began practicing, um, I too, and of course I still do, have my mind be wandering and like a madhouse barreling out of control down the hill. And I found it actually very helpful in my readings about practice and taking retreats that, that actually these types of challenges are very, very normal when you meditate. They're so normal that they're actually written about in meditation manuals on how to work with the challenges that come up in meditation. And I often feel that the first night or the second night of a retreat, it's, I think, very important to name these because then you might not feel that you're all alone and that there actually are practices to uh, work with these. But I just want to acknowledge how normal it is to have challenges arising in the mind and the body. And in the Dharma, we speak of five particular challenges. And of course, many of these have their little, um, you know, there's, there's lots to unpack within each of these five. But they're known as the five hindrances or the five challenges. And so tonight, for a little bit of time, I want to really help to normalize that I suspect a number of us are living with. And so the first is the mind gets filled with a lot of wanting, desire, grasping. And conversely, when there's that wanting, there's the opposite of aversion, not wanting. Third is restlessness or boredom. The fourth is sleepiness. And the fifth is doubt. Any of those sound familiar? All five, okay. Yes. Anyone else? Raise your hands if you've been having any of these. Okay. Yeah. Look around. You're in good company. Okay. Normal, 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 normal. And it's really nice to know this is, this is normal and actually written in these teachings called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. First foundation is of the body that we'll be diving into this retreat. Second foundation is feeling tones. The third is mind, mind states, and the fourth is called the dharmas. And within this fourth foundation, there's a compilation of teachings and wisdoms to be understood and comprehended. And the very first teaching within the fourth, within the fourth foundation of mindfulness is on working with the five hindrances. So it's right in the very foundations of mindfulness, we have guidance on how to work with the challenges that come up in practice, as well as other teachings within the Fourth Foundation that support deeper awakening. So I just want to really name that this is normal. And they're called hindrances because they hinder, if you will, the steadying of the mind and the body, the steady of building concentration. If we're all over the place, that's, we can't steady ourselves, develop concentration. So just to name these just a little bit more. So wanting mind is sitting here and, and just dreaming about your next car. Maybe you saw Bob's meditation bench. Huh, that's got a nice pad on it. I think I'd like to get that. Or maybe someone sitting next to you has a really nice shawl or a little, like, ooh, I think I'd like to get a shawl when I go home. And maybe I'll go to the Spirit Rock bookstore. I'll get myself a shawl. And look how wonderful I'll look in the next retreat. So this is wanting and wanting and wanting. Maybe the person near you is like, hmm, that's pretty yummy. I'd like to get to know this person. We sometimes call this a Vipassana romance. 
So all types of things, we're sitting and trying to be with our breath, but we're just wanting this and wanting that. Very normal. And conversely, with the wanting, there is aversion. There's not wanting. It's too hot here. It's too cold. The person next to me is breathing too loud. The Vipassana Vendetta. Why is that person in line at the going so slow, going through the lunch line? Somehow this moment is just not measuring up to how I want it to be. And it causes a lot of aversion, a lot of not wanting. So this, again, is very normal for us to experience these from time to time. So if you're spinning around and there's a lot of wanting going on or not wanting, very normal indeed. The third is restlessness. It's like crawling out of my skin. Did the teachers fall asleep? Did they forget to ring the bell? This is boring. Did anyone ever die of boredom sitting meditation? Get me out of here. This is like unharnessed, unwieldy energy. We don't know what to do with ourselves. Again, like this crawling out of our skin, like pacing tigers. So sometimes we have these feelings of restlessness. And of course, this sleepiness, sloth and torpor, tired, spacing out. Sitting on my zafu, but I'd rather put my head on it. Sometimes it's also related that I just don't want to feel anything. I want to zone out. I want to get away from what's happening in my life. Sleepiness, sloth and torpor. And then there's doubt. I don't know if this meditation stuff is going to help me. I mean, I heard about that this is supposed to be helpful, but I don't know if it's going to be helping me. I don't get all of this. No eye contact, no cell phones. You had to put your cell phone in a basket for crying out loud. What is going on here? Doubt. So sometimes we may experience, you know, one or two of these hindrances, or that gentleman said, he experienced what we call in an acronym an MHA, which means a multiple hindrance attack. There's nothing more uncomfortable than wanting and not wanting, restlessness, doubt, and sleepiness all happening at the same time. And sometimes it's like this. It gets very uncomfortable, and we just want to really, this is so normal for so many of us. Whether you're an experienced meditator or first time on the pillow, all of us most of the time have to work with these. So it's very normal. So those thoughts or feelings that you're not doing it right, um, this is very normal. And just briefly to say that the common antidote for all of these hindrances is awareness. So we have to understand that when we're unmindful, we're lost in these old patterns of reactivity, just spinning and spinning about. But once the light turns on, the light of awareness, mindfulness, all of a sudden you see that you've been spinning. The moment prior to that, there was no awareness, just lost in the aversion, lost in the restlessness, lost in wherever it is that we are. But once the light's turned on, awareness, mindfulness, we see more clearly now, we step for a moment perhaps out of that vicious cycle of rumination or the mind spinning, and we can begin to respond to it rather than to react to it. So a very big difference, mindfully responding to what's here. Oh, here's aversion, here's doubt, here's this, here's that, rather than being lost in the spin of it. So I want to just 
really name the importance of mindfulness, which is actually in the fourth foundation of mindfulness in the teachings of the dharmas, after the um, five hindrances are these factors of awakening, beginning with mindfulness. And then that opens up into investigation to begin to become intimate, to check this out, to become curious about it. So when we're struck with and we become aware of wanting or not wanting, restlessness, it's so important for us to become at first, mindful of it, to become aware, oh, here's wanting, here's not wanting, here's restlessness, and to know it, to feel it. Perhaps the investigation is this, you know, what's really being longed for here, that somehow these moments are, are consuming us through wanting or aversion or restlessness. Sleepiness, of course, and we touched upon this earlier today, the importance of, of course, number one, being aware that you are sleepy, because then we can develop potentially some resources to, um, to work with it, such as opening the eyes, or someone's mentioned being on the tiger trail, or I like to, as saying, I like to look up there, that kind of like uplifts me. One of my old teachers used to meditate with burning candles on his palms, so get some wax. Or he'd sit on a chair, but instead of sitting with the back behind him, he would turn around the other way, so if he, he'd fall off the chair if he fell asleep. These are kind of um, macho ways, but you know. I also know that for many of us coming here, we are really tired. We may not even know how tired we are until we've begun to stop. Because for many of us, we've lost the art of siesta, the circadian rhythms, the biorhythms. So I think for many of us, it's um, not surprising to, you know, particularly in mid, late afternoon, after lunch, that we're falling asleep a lot. And so, of course, standing can be very helpful as well, opening the eyes. I also, <laughs> I, 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 we won't ever do this here, but um, I, I have this fantasy that I have to really share with you. That, you know, if we had like a week-long retreat, what I would do, rather than having like 90 cushions, I'd have 90 beds in here. And like, okay, the first day we sleep 15 hours, the next day we sleep 12 hours, and <laughs> finally by the end of the retreat we've woken up and um, we'll be able to meditate now. I don't think we realize just how tired we are until we stop. The body is exhausted and perhaps somewhere within you there's this desire to take rest, but often other voices come up and say, but you have to go shopping, have to pick up the kids, have to do this extra project, have to take care of mom and dad, have to take care of our kids. I mean, it goes on, these lists of the type of lives that a number of us live. One of the things that I love about retreat, and I just love this word, maybe because um, this word just makes me just relax and soften. The word is called unhurried. And in retreat, we get a chance to unhurry a bit, to become unhurried. And it's very, very wonderful. But in that unhurriedness, we may discover just how tired we are. So, you know, you may want to consider during the meal time to, to take some rest, to rest this body, to be kind. There's an old teaching story of two young monks and 
they were practicing strenuously and one of them fell asleep on the cushion and the other one got really mad and decided to tell his teacher on him. And so that monk went and told the teacher and then the teacher said, here's a blanket, go put it on him. So that's a very loving way to help hold ourselves within practice. I think it's also just one last thing that I'll say about if we're repeatedly falling asleep a lot, it could very well be that we're tired, but it could very well be that there's some parts inside of us that we're just not wanting to feel, to look at, to be with. And so sometimes with that type of resistance, the, just, you just end up sleeping so you don't have to feel. So I think it's always very uh, important to take a look if there's any truth to that. The last hindrance is doubt, and um, this is a challenging one when we begin to experience a lot of doubt. But I think what's very important first and foremost, again, is at one moment we're lost in the world of doubt. We're just, you know, in, you know, in this world of doubt, like, I'm out of here. But all of a sudden you become aware, oh, here's doubt. Remember there was these teachings, there's teachings about doubt. Ah, I'm experiencing doubt right now. And so it's very powerful that we can begin to name it and to acknowledge it and potentially begin to investigate it. What is this belief that I have or this story or this narrative that um, keeps on spinning this type of doubtful, doubtful way of things? And of course, the other aspect of doubt that's actually in a more positive light is investigation. And these teachings, you know, in the Buddha always invited us to investigate deeply into the nature of things. Don't even believe the teacher because the teacher says so or the books. See for yourself with your own experience. So you might even want to recall it. Oh yeah, this, let me investigate this. There's actually, um, I find too when I'm, I've had some doubt, there's a beautiful couple of lines from a, a Pablo Neruda poem. It's called Keeping Quiet. Pablo Neruda was from Chile, and um, he speaks about what would it be like if the whole world would just stop for 12 seconds. And I won't read the whole poem, but just in the middle of it, it goes, if we were not so single-minded, and actually why I'm going to quote this is because this, to me, really dispels some doubt in why we are meditating. So this is the why we are meditating, this, these, these words speak to me so deeply. He says, if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps this huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps this huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. To me, this is one of the most beautiful descriptions of why do we sit still? Yeah, to begin to understand more the workings of our own mind and body and heart. In the traditional teachings, they also speak about some classical ways, like for working with wanting, it's, perhaps it's skillful at times to reflect on the brevity of life, of impermanence, of aversion, practicing its opposite of loving kindness, of sleepiness, perhaps uh, you know, we were talking about the tiger path and posture erect and open the eyes, wash the face, glue the ears and so forth. 
restlessness to develop one-pointedness, concentration, sometimes brisk walking, very deliberate one-pointed walking or one-pointed meditation practice can be very helpful to counteract because restlessness is the opposite of one-pointedness. And doubt is um, the development of faith or confidence, these three refuges that we um, took last night of awakening, the teachings of awakening, the community that supports awakening, helping to build our faith, our confidence in the practice. I also want to just say very briefly the importance of how we hold ourselves while we practice. And to me, the attitude is incredibly important. And I can speak from that from my own personal experience, having in a metaphorical way hit my head against the wall with my meditation practice for the first 20 or more years and began to realize that it hurts. And, um, and perhaps bringing in these practices of, of kindness. Pema Chojin speaks about training a dog, and I think it's akin to mind training us as meditators. And, you know, the object of training a new dog, if you want to get it to sit or to lie down and stay, you have to, it has to go through a training. And you can train it very rigidly, very tightly, and the dog will eventually learn those commands to sit, to stay, to come. But often through a type of a rigid and fear-based type of training, the dogs can become sort of neurotic and confused. And by contrast, training with kindness, the dog will eventually learn to stay and come and sit. But often those types of dogs become much more confident and flexible. And I feel that this is such a wonderful teaching for us as practitioners, that you know, we, we can get to the same goal of sit, stay, come, but it, the training through kindness rather than through fear and rigidity. Are we moving towards developing more confidence and flexibility or rather be neurotic and confused? Which one are we feeding here? Is it an old Native American teaching story says, which one am I feeding? And so can we begin to feed that part of supporting our practice with kindness. When your mind wanders off for the thousandth time in that 45 minute sit, for the thousandth time, bringing it back, acknowledging where you went with kindness and continuing on. There's even a Christian mystic, St. Francis de Sales said, he was a meditator, if you did nothing else of the, of the whole of your hour but bring your mind back every time it went off, which seemed like every other moment, he ends it by saying your hour would still be well employed. That's a very beautiful way of holding the practice. This is part of the repetition. You go to the gym, you're working out with the weights, you don't get muscle mass right away. It's through the repetition that gradually that muscle mass gains. The repetition, the mind wanders off, you acknowledge it, and you come back and gradually begins to steady. Just like kind of like priming a pump. It may seem like the, the status quo is anything but being mindful, but we can actually begin to reverse that trajectory and begin to sustain our awareness on the object that we're bringing attention to and be able to sustain it there for a period of time. But we're in training. There's an Australian meditation teacher, Bob Sharples, and 
He says, don't meditate to fix yourself or to heal yourself or to improve yourself. Do it as an act of love. In this way, there's no longer any need for the subtle aggression of self-improvement, for the endless guilt of not doing enough. It offers a possibility of an end to the ceaseless rounds of trying so hard that wraps so many of our lives in a knot. How about meditation as an act of love? Such a beautiful invitation. I think, does anybody know about the subtle aggression of self-improvement that wraps your lives in a knot? Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Well, if you still don't believe me, this is dedicated to you. So if you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills and be cheerful and ignore aches and pains, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the worlds without lies and deceits, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can conquer tension without medical help, relax without liquor, sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all of these things, you must be the family dog. Okay, so much being made of the right meditative stuff. One thing that we want to understand, this meditation is about you. It's going to be sound a little paradoxical because we use the breath as a meditation object and a number of other objects, but the practice is about you and we use these objects to help us to see more clearly the workings of our own mind and heart. And so can we begin to infuse those qualities of patience and kindness? And that also involves wise effort. By being patient and kind doesn't mean not practicing, but perhaps wise effort has this quality of training uh, that understands about that kindness could be uh, a skillful way. And we come to practice, uh, just as the Buddha came for practice, deeply understanding the, the nature of life. I won't go into the story tonight and probably be told on another night or when I speak again, but you know, it, it's such an amazing story of, of his realization in his 29th year of life of the inevitabilities of aging, illness, and death that no one can escape from. This is what awakened him onto the path. And I trust for many of us, um, you know, we wouldn't be coming here if we haven't been visited. These are known sometimes as the heavenly messengers, the messenger of aging, the messenger of illness, the messenger of death. And the last messenger, that he came across a monk, a holy person, and, and discovered that maybe there's another way, a way towards peace. So we come here for many different reasons. I know people here with pain, with illness, the realities of life, stress, challenges, and coming to um, hopefully to understand more about the workings of their own mind and heart. This is certainly what brings me here. So one way into this discovery of our heart is through uh, a number of different mindfulness meditation practices, and the focus of this retreat is in the body. So I'm going to speak a little bit about this tonight. 
because tomorrow we're going to be beginning to practice the 32 parts of the body meditation. So just to give you a little orientation, I mentioned that um, in these teachings there are four foundations of mindfulness, of the bodies, feelings, mind, and the dharmas. And each of these foundations are interrelated and interconnected in the way we practice the 32 parts of the body, sensing into the body, but of course our life begins to reveal itself. So it actually involves the other foundations arise within it together. Again, the beautiful quote from the Buddha that within this fathom-long body with its thoughts and emotions lies our world. There's the first three foundations of mindfulness right there. Within this fathom-long body with its thoughts and emotions lies our world. Its origin, its cessation, its pathway to freedom is found within this fathom-long body. I was introduced to this meditation in 1980 when I traveled to Burma to temporarily ordain as a Buddhist monk. And my teacher, his name was Tungpulu Siado, was um, very much into the 32 parts of the body meditation. Actually, he, he says this about this. He says that, that the 32 parts of the body is the most eminent among all of the satipatthanas, which are the foundations of mindfulness. He says this meditation is unlike any other kind of meditation, and that it is brought to light and taught only in the times when the Buddhas arise. And so I was introduced to this practice uh, many, many years ago. And, um, you know, in, in some ways I was, I was maybe... I thought of this earlier today, I, though the Sero introduced a very formal part of the 32 parts of the body, but I, I actually remember as a child, my mother uh, was, was a painter. And her paintings have had a huge influence in my life when I look back at it. And I'm so glad a few years ago I was actually able to talk with her about some of her paintings that these are just powerful images that I saw as a child and uh, had, had again, and, and be able to, to thank her that these images, these paintings, really became part of me, and I, I don't know, I, I kind of like followed their destiny in some way. And um, what, one of her earliest paintings that I absolutely loved, um, she gave it to a friend of ours, but it was a picture of... Um, a white person and a black person, and there was kind of looking at each other in kind of fear. And then the next picture was was a, a sort of like a human body that had both white and black, but then the entire chest cavity and abdominal area was was opened up, and all with these internal organs. And then the next two pictures was the white person, the black person looking this, and they've got like. This, this, we're all the same, like when we begin to open up and look at these parts. And it was just a powerful image for me growing up, this image that, you know, underneath this skin, you know, these organs, we, we all share these organs in, in life. And, you know, I know there's a... I'm, I'm not saying this to try to disregard and not acknowledge the disparity and the 
injustice of what's going on with race and diversity and so many things. But I, I, I guess I speak to this painting because it was at a very early age I was being exposed to, you know, underneath the skin, we, we are all human beings. <clears throat> so the 32 parts of the body meditation is um, a practice of going into the body and sensing to what we're feeling physically and potentially what may arise mentally and emotionally. Now, I know you all know that there's way more than 32 parts. So why the Buddha picked these 32 and not others, we don't know. But I can say in practicing this for many, many years, what makes the most sense to me is that these parts are like ambassadors or gateways or doorways into the body. For example, my wife has diabetes and there's no mention of the pancreas, but there's mention of some other abdominal organs. And so as she goes into there and then gradually the, the, the pancreas naturally arose. So we go into a, an organ or a part and it opens up to the rest of the body. But there's tw how it's uh, organized is that there's 20 solid parts and 12 liquid parts. And I think a number of you got the little handouts today, and if you didn't get one, you can get it later, and you can just put it underneath your um, cushion when you leave tonight, and tomorrow morning we're actually going to uh, chant some of these parts. And, but anyways, just to give you a little bit of a sense of the parts of the body, I'll just recite to you right now so you have a little sense to it, of what it, it is. So the 20 solids are... Head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, and brain. Yeah, did the Buddha have a sense of humor? The feces and the brain? I don't, but we also understand that the digestive system is the second brain these days. And the liquid parts, bioflam, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. <laughs> so that's quite a group of parts. And um, again, why these particular parts? We don't know for sure why. And even looking, I've looked a lot into the canonical literature, the commentaries. There's not a lot of explanation. So again, this is coming out of my many, many years of practice with this since 1980 that I, I really feel that these are ambassadors or gateways into the fathom-long body. And as far as the order, it is kind of interesting. When you look at that the head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, and skin, are, when I look at another human being, that, that's what I actually see. Besides clothes, is head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, and skin. And then, of course, unzippering the skin, there's the flesh, which is the muscles, and the, the sinews of the connective tissue, and then there's the bones, and then the bone marrow, then it jumps to kidneys. But why, how is that? But then bone marrow is about, it, it's making blood, developing blood, and the kidneys are blood purifiers. So it's kind of interesting how, how that it was termed here. And of course, these parts were named and practiced with um, tw nearly 2,600 years ago. And of course, um, just to throw a little bit of an ironic twist to things, um, you know, we kind of think that 
we've discovered everything. You know, we've traveled from one end of the world to the other. We're now going into outer space. But as it turns out, um, researchers are discovering new body parts. Now, no, you don't have a third arm or third leg. But actually, in the last few years, there was a new layer of the human cornea that was discovered. It's called the duos layer. And um, so th this was something in the last couple of years that in human anatomy. And then there was also a particular ligament, the anterolateral ligament in the knee, even though there have been so many dissections, it was just in the last few years that they discovered that there was another ligament in there. So even the human body is like this amazing uncharted territory in so many ways. And so um, the body, the body. And, you know, it's really interesting because when I first was taught this practice, again, it was in 1980, um, I didn't really quite get it. We were chanting these parts and working with these parts. But I continued to practice it off and on, and as the years went by, I left the monastery, I got married, entered into the advanced practice of a partner and two kids, and got a job teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction in medical centers, and one of the primary practices in MBSR is the body scan meditation, beginning with the left foot, working our way up to the top of the head. But when we look at it, um, I really believe that the 32 parts of the body is the great-grandmother or grandfather of all body scans. Like when we look at the Buddhist meditation literature, there's no such thing as a body scan, but there is the 32 parts of the body. So this to me is the original body scan. But being that I was an MBSR teacher for many years, I would teach the body scan and I would still dabble with the 32 parts um, through the years. And it's very funny to say, but it's true, that um, 26 years later, I had this, um, like this light bulb turn on. And I wish I had, um, we could pull down the screen and get a big PowerPoint here, because you might, I'll actually put this on the back table so you can see it later. It's, it's from the far side, it's a Gary Larson cartoon. And it's a picture of three cows. They're in a um, field, and they're eating grass. This is what they do. They eat grass. One day, this one cow had an epiphany. And it starts calling out to the other cows, Hey, wait a minute. We're eating grass. We're eating grass. We're eating grass. <laughs> so in the same way, 26 years later, wait a minute. We got a body. We got a body. We got a body. I don't know how to say it any other way, but it was like this epiphany. Like, we got a body. And the 32 parts of the body meditation totally, it was like this total rotation in realizing how profound this practice was. It took me 26 years to, to realize that. And since that time, I've been practicing and teaching it even more. At Inside Santa Cruz, we, there's actually a long version to this practice. It takes actually um, eight months or 33 weeks. And this, this year in September, at the end of this month, we'll begin the 11th year 
of this eight-month practice. And I'm so grateful for Mary Grace, um, you know, being on the Spirit Rock Teachers Council, and you know, she was also um, the founding teacher for Insight Santa Cruz and guiding teacher for many years until a few years ago where she asked me to um, carry on, and she moved to Hawaii, but also in the early years, and thank you, Chris, for reminding us we've been here nine years, but you know, if it wasn't for Mary Grace you know, being on the Spirit Rock Teachers Council, we wouldn't be holding these retreats, and have a lot of gratefulness. And these practices of the 32 parts of the body are rare to be experienced in the West as well as in the East. And uh, so it's, it's wonderful to be able to um, introduce this practice and to have us practice together. And, um, you know, through the years I've heard incredible um, stories of people's experiences that um, really brought a lot of healing. Example, um, let's just see here. Yeah, there's a, a woman I knew. She's now passed away. And um, name was Barbara. And she came to the monastery, and the monks introduced her to the 32 parts of the body. And she said that um, she was dying of, of cancer and that her oncologist had um, said that she just had one year to live. And so the monks said, we want you to practice the 32 parts of the body. And she got really into it. And um, every year for the next five years, she would send a postcard to her oncologist saying, still here, love Barbara. And she, she eventually succumbed to her illness, which is like about six years later, which is you know, quite remarkable because, you know, she was... Um, you know, just given a year left. And, and e- even in her dying, I'm going to read to you a, a poem that she wrote shortly before her death that really speaks of healing, healing even into life, but healing into death. And she says, she calls it of life and death. And she says, it's not the will to live which sustains my life, but the release from fear. I've not outwitted death but I've broken free from the stranglehold of fear. At Christmas, we celebrate the wonders of birth. At Easter, the miracle of rebirth. What then of death? Without fear of death, without fear, death unfolds like a warm cloak of soft black wool. Death is the abyss from which all life emerges, drawn by the light. Barbara Roberts. Another person, she wrote about her experience with the 32 parts, that I've been disembodied for most of my life, the result of very early and sustained child abuse by multiple abusers. The teachings of the 32 parts of the body have allowed me to claim my body as my own, organ to muscle to veins to fluids and skin. I have removed the hands of unwanted perpetrators from my body and from my mind and heart. My heart has deep compassion for this body that has not been mine. It goes on, but I'll just... It's very amazing the type of 
healing, the connection we can begin to have with the body. There's a particular way to practice this meditation, and we will be working with you in it in these next few days. And one particular method is called the sevenfold skill in learning. And this is where the chanting part comes in that I'll explain. And so what is recommended in doing this practice is that we actually verbally recite these parts. And we are going to do this the next three mornings, starting tomorrow morning. We'll come to our meditation at 6.30 and we'll sit for a half hour and then from 7 to 7.15 before breakfast, we will chant all 32 parts five times forward, five times backwards, five times forward and backwards. When we actually do the practices in the guided meditations, both at 9 in the morning and at 2.15 in the afternoon, we'll recite the particular parts that we're going to be meditating upon. Generally, the solid parts are going to be in groups of five, four groups of five. 20 solid parts, and two groups of liquids, or six parts per group. And so when we chant, and tomorrow, I mean, for at 9 o'clock when we do our first meditation, it's going to be on head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin, and we will chant those parts. And part of the teaching is as we chant this verbally, that sets up for us to know it in the mind mentally. And from there, we want to begin to penetrate to know the color of the body part, the shape of it, the location, the direction, is it above or below the waist, and its boundary. It's kind of like Google Maps. It's going to help us to hone in on that part. That's what the sevenfold skill in learning is. It's helping us to hone in onto that particular part. We'll also give you some information, the definition of that part, its function. So these like preliminary things to help us to hone into that part. And then we're going to bring our awareness to sense into those parts and just be aware of what we're feeling physically and potentially what might get evoked mentally or emotionally. So this, again, within this fathom-long body with its thoughts and emotions lies our world. So as we come into these parts, we sense into what we're feeling physically, mentally, and emotionally. I have a good friend of mine that um, did this practice. And just to give you like a little bit of an example, um, she wrote about each part and what came up for her. It's like, someday I'm going to have this in a book. But I'll start with feces. (laughs) So she's meditating on her feces. And then she writes, here comes the memory. There's no stopping it now. Because she's sitting with these parts. Like like one person was saying that she was with head here. All of a sudden, what arose was the memory of her stroking her dying grandmother's hair. Like it's all here in the body. So feces, here comes the memory. It's no stopping it now. When I was very young, I remember this memory. I looked up and admired my brother so much. I would do whatever he told me. One time he told me he had a club with neighborhood boys, and of course I wanted to be part of the club. But of course he didn't want me to be in the club. So he told me to go away. And um, so he told me that the only... Oh, no, I'm sorry. So he told me the only way to get into the club 
was to hold a piece of human feces in your bare hand. Clearly, he thought I would never do it. He was wrong. Soon after he told me this opportunity came, I caught my own feces in my hand before it touched the water. It was a perfect specimen for this, not wet or drippy. I walked through the house looking for my brother with feces in my hand. I finally found him outside in the backyard and showed it to him. I was so proud. I was triumphant. I thought he would have been so impressed. And all he said was, that's great. Go put that thing back. So I did. And as far as I know, that club never met. And I never heard another thing about it. I think I felt like I had proven myself to my brother. I could keep up with him and do whatever he could do, but I also had this deeper suspicion that I had been tricked and I felt ashamed. And this memory still fills me with a sense of shame. How could I have not seen through it and done something so disgusting to please someone else? I think I was about five years old then. It was a small and silly thing on the hand, on my hand, but it was also an act that I did that took away my dignity, and there was no one there looking out for me. Where were my parents? Feces. Anyways, it's very gripping. So, like, we sit with our life and think, you know, she's just five years old. She's now, like, in her mid-40s. She's a physician. And yet that story is still there. There's much more. I'll read more from this another point. So we can say that this practice, in some ways, as I've just described, is incredibly personal. And on one other side, it's incredibly impersonal. Because this body just does what it does. You know, I have an enlarged prostate that impinges upon my urine flow, and it's not like I sent it a text or an email and said, get bigger. It's just doing its thing, because that's just nature. So there's a part of the body that is actually so impersonal. You know, I didn't say, here, fall out of my head. It just just did it. Or, you know, can I just stop my aging? You know, I kind of like 42, but I'm now 62. You know, it's like, there's not a lot of control here. So there's a very deep, impersonal part to this practice. And on the other side, it's incredibly personal, because our life is here in this body. And actually, when you think about the body, um, as well as it's um, not being personal, you know, that the fact is that, um, and the the most recent research is is that uh, we're just about 10% human. And we're actually about 90% other organisms. One out of every 10, you know, we're 10% human. And um, that's a pretty humbling thing. And of course, within one square inch of skin lies 32 million bacteria. And so, um, and the, it's actually very interesting that in the Dharma teachings, there actually is a whole teaching called the living with the many. And it's about these organisms. 2,600 years ago in early Buddhist meditation, there was practices on this penetrating living with the many, that this body is um, many, many occupants in the body. And actually, when you look at decomposition, the very first movement of decomposition when the body dies is it actually begins, the organisms begin to eat of itself. It's like, what a design. It's amazing. My teacher, Tempulusero, 
he gave a teaching once at the monastery for 81 straight nights on the 81 different families of organisms that live in the body. And you know, each night, like there'd be the ones in the ears and the nose and, the, and then, you know, everywhere. And uh, he always ended it with a little poem. And in Burmese it goes, Po ain, pozo, ikanda go i, thudo i, thodan, thinjain, pit i. And what that means is these organisms eat of the body, this is part of their food, and then of course they defecate and urinate. And gradually in time they partner up and they copulate and grow little babies, and then gradually they get old, and then gradually they die, and thus your body is a cemetery. And then we'd go on to the next group the next night. <laughs> Very poetic, the Cero. But I, you know, he's this guy like 90 years old teaching about the 81 different organisms in the body. Like, who was this guy? Kind of amazing. So they speak about benefits of the practice. And probably the most profound benefit is the gradual eradication of the view of, of self. Is myself found in head here? So it's pointing to this ownerless nature, like my head here, like the prostate gland. So this ownerless nature of things. The second, that it can be a healing meditation. I already shared with you a couple of um, stories of people. So for those of you that are uh, having trouble with restlessness and boredom, it says you can become the conqueror of boredom if you do this practice. You can conquer fear and dread. You can bear cold and heat. You can uproot pride and clinging. That sounds pretty good. You can amass deep concentration. You will be intelligent. You will develop absorption. You will attain great freedom, nibbana. So these are very wonderful benefits of this practice. And so tomorrow we will be diving into the body, that our history is here inside our body. This body is our storehouse. So I feel like I'm just uh, really like kind of the tip of the iceberg. That's kind of enough for tonight, other than I want to end with one, one reading. Hmm. Hopefully I've wet your whistle a little bit for this 32 parts of the body. So this is called the human body. It's by Tsongkhapa. It says, The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty and it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life, you must know, is a tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. The human body, at peace with itself, is more precious than the rarest of gems. So we'll just sit with that for a moment. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. So as for these few breaths, just opening to some contentment and ease. May there be peace.
thank you for um, receiving this, and um, we'll take some time for some walking practice and call you back in a little bit for our um, last formal sit of the evening. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.